Okay, good morning everyone. I'm Joe Collins and it's nice to see you this morning. Uh, as you might have guessed, we are in the middle of a series entitled uh, Losing My Religion. And uh, before we get into the series though, I do want to be the next person in sequential order to wish everybody a happy Father's Day. And I'm going to ask all the dads to stand up. We do have a small gift for you. In addition to pancakes, you get a gift this morning. So stand up. Let's give all the dads a round of applause. Yeah, and we even got a grandpappy. He can, he can have two if he's a grandpappy. Let him have two. So I think we got you a little keychain, flashlight thingy, something very manly. Hopefully you enjoy that. It comes in handy. But again, I uh, just want to wish all the dads a happy Father's Day. We are appreciative of all you do as fathers. Uh, so we really are grateful for everything. I think we got one more up here, Dane. In the front right here. We're missing one. Dane, right over here. Uh, so guys, go ahead and be seated. Thanks so much for being the great dads that you are. <coughs> okay. Now, I don't know about you and what your family was like growing up, but I grew up in a family with four kids. I got an older brother, two older sisters, and, and you know, we're all very different. But one of the things that uh, is interesting about all of us is all of us have something in common with our dad. You know, there's some quality of our dad that's been sort of passed into each one of us and it might be a little different from person to person but I can look at myself my brother my two sisters and I can see uh, my dad in each one of us now I don't know your family situation what you grew up with if you were with your biological dad or not but I can I can tell you confidently that there is something of your dad your biological father that is in you that's what makes that relationship so unique and it's so special and it's 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 incredible um, and, uh, you know, as a father, one of the cool things is you see your kids grow up and you want nothing more than them to grow up and go do well and leave the home and be successful. But you also get a little bit of satisfaction knowing that uh, there's a little bit of you in them and that they carry that out there into the world. And, you know, in my case, that's good and bad. Uh, maybe in your case, it's all good. It probably is. But I know in my case, they have a little bit of me and that's sometimes not always good. Sometimes it is good, but it's neat to see it. And it's really a blessing to be a father. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we've just read is called the, the, the Beatitudes. It's the beginning. It's the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever taught. The Beatitudes uh, list out sort of eight uh, characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want you to think of the Beatitudes as kind of the starting point. It's the beginning. It's where we all begin. It's the ground floor of becoming a Christian, of the Christian faith. Now, before we get into our study for today, the specific beatitude, we've been going through each one each week, and we're almost done with the series. We've got one more after today, uh, but we're, we're right down near the end, number seven. Before we get into that beatitude, though, there's a few guidelines that I want to remind you of. The first one is this, that the beatitudes are meant for all followers. In other words, anyone who wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ must embrace, they must manifest or, or, or yeah, embrace in themselves 
the Beatitudes. They must become them. The second thing is that all followers must manifest all Beatitudes. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to say, I want this one. I'm not going to do that one. No, we got to be all of these things. Thirdly, the Beatitudes are not something we're born with. These are not qualities that are, that are, that are similar to our personalities or our, our character traits. These are spiritual qualities. So in, in that sense, they're, they're a completely different uh, level of, of depth in which we're talking about here. We're not just talking about what you might be born with, your personality. Next, the Beatitudes separate followers from non-followers. You know, our world likes to divide things. It likes to put people in groups and categories. We like to divide by race, by gender, by socioeconomic status, etc. Political persuasion, right? We're constantly dividing. That's, that's unfortunate. It's what we do in this world. But when, G, when it comes to Jesus, Jesus, you know, was kind of like a Sicilian. I grew up, a, I'm, I'm half Sicilian, and I used to have this little card somebody in my family gave me, and it said there's two kinds of people in the world, Sicilians and those that want to be, right? And so Jesus was kind of like that. When he saw the world, there were just two kinds of people. There were Christians and those that aren't Christian. He didn't divide us into categories. And, and that also goes for within the Christian church, within his community or his fellowship. He didn't separate us out by gender, by age, by race. We were just Christians. And you know, that's something I think we got to get back to in our society, isn't it? I mean, and maybe as a church, we can influence the world around us a little bit to get back to just the simple distinction of, are you a follower or are you not? And let's get rid of all the race baiting and the, the economic uh, baiting and all the other kind of things that go out there in the world that are constantly meant to divide and cause conflict between people. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. Lastly. The Beatitudes are otherworldly. They're not of this world. They're from a different world. And so when you see them, you might appreciate them, but you would not think these Beatitudes are what's going to make a man successful in this world, and nor should they, because they're not designed for this world. They're designed for a different world. So with that in mind, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we are so grateful to be together this morning. Please speak to each and every one of us. Speak through me and to me and to all of us here. Your words of wisdom and insight help us to become uh, the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's look at our, our, our next beatitude, number seven on the list. Blessed, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, if you're following along, otherwise you can look on the screen above. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You know, I don't have to tell you this, but the world is a troubled place. Conflicts are common between countries, between communities, and even between couples. It was true then, it's true now. True. The world needs peacemakers. Right. So what is a peacemaker? Well, let's, as we've been doing through the whole series, let's talk about what a peacemaker isn't. I've got some images I'm going to show you on the screen above, and we're going to talk about each image and give you a sense of what a peacemaker isn't. All right, here's the first image. Ready? What you're looking at is a Colt 45 single, uh, single, action, single action army revolver. This was the gun that was called the gun that won the West, and its nickname was the Peacemaker. This is not what we're talking about. Next picture. We got an image here. It says peace and war. I put this up because whenever you talk about peacemakers, uh, you can't help but think about the concept of pacifism. The, the, the pacifism is the belief uh, that uh, war or violence is unjustifiable under any circumstance. It's, it's, it's a belief that many people have. And, and I want you to know something. I'm not here to say if you believe that, that that's right or wrong. I'm not making a judgment about that belief. I'm just telling you what it is. But I am going to say this. 
it's not what Jesus was talking about. When he talked about blessed are the peacemakers, he did not have pacifism in mind. He was talking to a Jewish audience in the first century and specifically to their needs. We'll get into that a little bit later. But it's not about a, a political or, or a, a personal code of contact, conduct of pacifism that he was necessarily advocating. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying in context, that's not what he was talking about. Next concept uh, is this image here, and maybe some of you will know what this is, but many of you might not. You know the guy on the, I guess he would be on your left? That's Hitler, right? Is he on the left? Right. He's on the right. The guy on the right is Hitler. We can figure that out, right? But the question is, who's the guy shaking his hand? That's right, a guy named Neville Chamberlain. He was the prime minister of England before World War II, and he pursued a policy of appeasement with Adolf Hitler. Nazi Germany was becoming more and more radical, and they were becoming more and more aggressive. And Chamberlain in, in, it was, was absolutely against war. He, just, he would do anything to not get into a war with Germany, and so he kept appeasing Adolf Hitler. He kept giving him what he wanted. The concept of appeasement is to pacify or placate by acceding to someone's demands. And we know how that turned out. It was very unsuccessful as a policy. Jesus was not talking about being a peaser. That's not what he was saying. He wasn't asking you to placate or pacify people when he called you to be a peacemaker. And here's the last image. All of you should recognize this image. It's Jeff Spicoli, right? Remember Jeff Spicoli? So Jeff Spicoli, what, what does he represent? Well, he represents a laid-back person, right? That's, it's just, hey, you know, everybody's going to get along. Everything's all right. You know, he's just tolerant in everything. But Jesus wasn't talking about being laid back when he was talking about being a peacemaker. He didn't want any Spicolis in his community. Because being laid back is simply a personality quality. It's some of us are, some of us aren't. But it doesn't lead to becoming a peacemaker. The problem with all of these images and all these definitions, and, and i got to tell you this to be quite frank, is they just fundamentally don't work. That's the first problem. The avoidance of war does not make peace. Peace at any cost is not peace. Lax standard leads to lax behavior. They don't work. The second problem, and maybe more, more, more importantly for our, our time today, is that in every one of these definitions, there's an avoidance of conflict. The end goal is to avoid a conflict. And so the concept of right and wrong or just and justice isn't even in play in any of these concepts, pacifism, appeasement, or being... Uh, 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 laid back. They just avoid the conflict altogether. In my, in my study, uh, I was reading an author and he was talking about this concept and, and he made this point. He said that these concepts, they don't, they don't stand where they should stand. And then he used this word, and I love this word. He said, they're flabby. That's what's wrong with them, right? These are flabby concepts. They're, they're, they're milk toast. They're weak. They're wishy-washy. And nobody here wants to be flabby. And so, if you are taking notes on your phone or just on a notepaper or whatever in your mind, I want you to write this down. A peacemaker is not an ineffective conflict avoider. That's what it's not. So the question now becomes, what is a peacemaker? Well, you may not have noticed it, but I'm going to put before you that the answer is right in front of you. In fact, it's right there in the, the, the beatitude itself. It says, a peace, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. A peacemaker, fundamentally, is a child 
of God. Now, I want you to think about this concept. Who here, who here knows who this is? This is Mini-Me. Mini-Me, he, uh, he was a clone of Dr. Evil, if you know who Dr. Evil was, right? The comic, uh, comical bad guy in the Austin Powers shows. And, 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 and Mini-Me was a clone. He was exactly the same as, as uh, Dr. Evil in every way, but he was just one-eighth the size. And so he was called Mini-Me. You know, a peacemaker is a smaller version of Christ. That's what we are. That's what he called his followers to be, to be a, a, a version of himself. Much like my brothers and sisters all have a quality of my dad in each one of us, Jesus wanted his followers to have something of him in each one of them. He wanted many Christ. And that's what a peacemaker is. And i got to tell you something, Christ was anything but an ineffective conflict avoider. Let me share with you what I mean. John chapter 8. Now we're going to have some fun. We're going to get into a really cool, or at least I think it's really cool, Bible study. John chapter 8, we'll start in verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made, their stand before the, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, and, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has anyone condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I picked this passage because I think it really represents the concept of what a peacemaker is. But this passage in and of itself is not without controversy. And I want to talk about that. It's one of the reasons why I liked this passage, why I wanted to pick it, because there's actually conflict going on with this passage itself in the scriptures. Right. And we're going to have to make peace with that. Now, you may not know the Bible very much or, or have very little uh, uh, um, uh, under, uh, knowledge of what's written in the Bible, but I promise you almost, I, I guarantee you everyone in here has heard some version of this story. It's that famous. I mean, it's one of the most famous stories in all of the Gospels. People love this story. But did you know that there's some controversy about this story? That, that not everybody believes that this is an authentic story? In fact, if you have your Bible open, right above the story, there'll be a little uh, uh, message there, or a little parentheses, or maybe in the footnotes, and it'll say that the earliest manuscripts do not have this section in them. And so that's caused some people to say these are, these are not authentic. This may not be uh, an actual account of what Jesus did. But I disagree. I disagree for a number of reasons. In my own research of this passage, my own digging into the information, has, I've discovered that most, most scholars, even liberal scholars, do accept this as an authentic passage, even though it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. Obviously, if it's not in the earliest known manuscripts, it does leave us to wonder, where did it come from? But I will tell you this, it is in at least one 
of the earliest manuscripts. And it's also referenced in other manuscripts that, are, that may not be the earliest, but they're very close to the earliest manuscripts. And it's referenced quite a few times. In fact, it's, it's in every Bible, and it's known worldwide, this story. And so I think the evidence kind of lands us on the side of that this is authentic. But why, why the controversy? What would cause this controversy to come up? Other than, you know, in addition to the idea that uh, the earliest manuscripts may not have it. Well, I think we got to go back and think about how the Bible was written for a minute. The Bible was written by men who were inspired by God. And in this case, John was an apostle. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He knew him personally. He was eyewitness to many of the events. And he, uh, uh, at some point, was called by the Holy Spirit to record his gospel, his uh, story of the life of Jesus Christ. And now imagine that. Imagine being John. You've spent three and a half years with the Son of God on earth. He's healed people. He's raised people from the dead. It's an, you know, you've seen him raised from the dead. I mean, it's an unbelievable three-year time period of your life. What are you going to pick? What stories are you going to choose from? I wouldn't be surprised if John had all kinds of, uh, they didn't have sticky notes, but he had sticky papyruses all over the place, right? Little, little notes that he had all over, just trying to think, collect his thoughts. Did you know that scrolls had a specific length? In other words, they didn't just go on forever. And so when you wrote, a, when you wrote on a scroll, you had to kind of plan it out because at some point you were going to run out of room. And so John, I believe, basically that's what happened. I believe he ran out of room. And what we're reading is one of the stories that just ended up on the floor. It was edited out of the scroll. You know, John says something that hints at this in chapter 20, or at the end of the gospel, I think it's in chapter 21. He says, you know, if all the stories of Jesus Christ were written down, there would not be enough room in the world for all the books that would have, that would have to be written. I mean, John had so many stories, and not all of them could make it. And I think maybe he got there. Maybe it was there, but then there were space issues or whatever. My point is, is that this, the, the whole account has a little bit of controversy, and we've got to make peace with that controversy. We've got to be able to look at it and go, okay, is this authentic? Is it not? For me, I made peace with it. Why? Because I think there's enough evidence that links it to the original. It links it back. And even if it wasn't in all the original co the, the copies of the original, it was in at least one, and it was in copies that were very close to the, uh, to the first uh, several copies within a couple hundred years. It's got to be authentic. Other, other people alive at the time reference it in different writings. And so it was a story that was already in existence very early on in the Christian faith. So I've made peace with it. Many scholars have too. They've, they've said we can't explain all the, all the mystery about it and all the reasons why, uh, so we're going to footnote it in, to be integrous, to have integrity, but we, we do consider it valid. I also believe it's valid just by the tone of it. If you read it, it just feels like Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, it just, it's just something he would do. This is not something a man could figure out. We're just not this clever to tell a story like this. And some of the details, him riding in the dirt and things like that, why would that be added? I mean, really? And so I think we can put it to bed. We can make peace with this passage. You know, the Bible is something that we all have to make peace with. We read the Bible, and there's things that we don't like in the Bible. All of us. There's things that are hard. They're challenging. And you know what? You've got to make peace at some point. You don't make peace by ignoring it. Right. You don't make peace by deciding not to read it or not wanting to hear it. I tried to do that at one point in my life. I tried not to read certain parts of the Bible because they bothered me. That wasn't making peace. That was, that was, that was running away. You know, that was avoiding the conflict. And then at some point in my life, I had to face what it said. 
I had to face it head on. I had to stand in the gap. I couldn't avoid the conflict, and I had to come to peace with it. And, and I think it's a great metaphor for the message today. Blessed are the peacemakers. We can't avoid conflict. If that's the end you have in mind, you are going to be sorely disappointed because you can't avoid it. And if you continue to try, then you're just going to become an appeaser. You're just going to become a, you know, a pacifistic in a sense. You're just going to become Mr. Laidback and tolerant of everything and everyone. And, and be flabby. Nobody wants to be flabby. So we got to make peace with it. But the other thing about this passage that I absolutely love is the actual story. And I promise you, I'm going out on a limb, I promise you that I'm going to give you some insight that you did not know. Even Masood doesn't know this insight. Could be wrong, maybe I'm wrong, I hope I'm not wrong, but I'm pretty sure that I'm going to give you some insights into this passage that are really going to make you go, whoa, that's an amazing story. And it's going to have relevance to us. It's going to mean something to us. So let's, let's kind of recap the story for a minute. Jesus, it's later in his ministry, probably in the, the, the final year of his ministry, he's in Jerusalem, he's down near the temple, and he, and he went into the temple to teach as a rabbi would normally do. And he sat down and, and he began teaching. Now, in the middle of his teaching, he is rudely interrupted by some teachers of the law and some Pharisees. Teachers of the law were like, uh, you could think of them as lawyers, but they were really more like scribes. What their job mainly was to write, was to, was to uh, um, copy the, the manuscripts, the, 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 the writings that were believed to be scripture. That's what the scribes did historically for a couple thousand years. Whenever, whenever God's people, a prophet spoke or, or a man inspired by God spoke and, and his words were recorded, there were scribes who took it upon themselves to make copies of those writings so they wouldn't get lost. And the scribes were awesome at what they did. In fact, we owe the scribes a tremendous debt of gratitude because they preserved the Word of God because they made thousands of copies in different languages or in different dialects or whatever. And, and those copies still exist. We find them every now and then. And, and because we have this amazing record of copies of the Old Testament Scriptures that were preserved by the scribes, we have the ability to authenticate the Old Testament. It's, it's like, a, it's like a, a record, a historical record of evidence that says this, what we're reading is actually what happened. It's legitimate, it's valid, it's confirmed. Amen. Let me give you an example. The Old Testament uh, was written over the course, well, the whole Bible is written over the course of about 1,500, 1,600 years. And it's believed that Moses wrote the first part of the Old Testament and then other writers after him. And then you get into the New Testament and there were several writers of that. And what's amazing about this is that uh, we have so much manuscript evidence for the Bible itself, the Old and the New Testament, over tens of thousands of manuscripts that date back all the way back to the first century. And then the Old Testament ones date back even earlier, even before the first century into the B.C. days. Right. And so we, because we have this record, we have this validity we have this authenticity we know that this is from god and that it's actually it's real it actually really happened and it's and it happened the way it said it happened because we can take all these manuscripts we can look at them we can compare them and guess what we find out when we compare them there's no difference they say the same thing in fact i think somebody did a study uh, that i read recently and and they said that they figured out that one percent of the bible uh is a little bit in question over the details of what was said or done and in every one of those cases of that 1%, it had nothing to do with changing the meaning or the message of the story. It just might have been a different word used or a different tone used or a different accent used. It was minor, minor things. 1%. Whoa, really? 
The nail in the coffin finally came in the 1940s when an, when an Arab boy threw a rock into a cave in Palestine and heard something break, and he found maybe the greatest archaeological find in modern history, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I'm hoping to go see one day. I think they're here still in L.A., and I would love to go see them. But they're, they're maybe the greatest archaeological find in modern time. And when they were discovered, these date back to prior to the first century. And there's copies of all the different books of the Old Testament, fragments, copies. There's an entire scroll of Isaiah. And when they broke them out and they read them, it was exactly the same thing we read today in our Bibles today. So we have proof upon proof that what we read is authentic. That the stories we, we, we see in the scriptures did happen and they were preserved meticulously throughout history. And we can prove it. To give you a comparison, Caesar wrote the Gaelic Wars somewhere in the first century. Did you know that we have only 10 existing manuscripts of the Gaelic Wars? And did you know that those 10 manuscripts, the oldest one, is a thousand years after it was written? We have no evidence in between when it was written to a thousand years, and then we have this book called the Gaelic Wars, and we believe that's enough evidence to say Caesar wrote it. And when we look at the Bible, we've got tens of thousands of manuscripts that date back to within a generation of the writings. So the Bible is 110% authentic. So the story we read did happen. It's been authenticated. It's been replicated. It's been preserved in history. It really did happen. And so Jesus was there and he was teaching and the scribes come in who we owe a debt of gratitude with a woman caught in adultery. And with them came, with them were the Pharisees. They were a religious sect of Jewish people that were uh, very committed. They were very intense. They were very strict. And between the two of them, they saw themselves as the protectors of the Jewish faith. So they bring this woman in who had been caught in adultery and they put her before Jesus and they say, look, the law says she must be put to death because an adulteress must be put to death or at least punished up to death. What say you? Now, the, the story tells us that this was not a test. This was a trap. And let me explain what I mean, the difference. Early in Jesus' ministry, he was tested quite a bit by the scribes and the Pharisees. That was their job. That's what they believed their mission in life was, one of them, was to make sure that any new rabbi was staying within the orthodox belief of the Jewish faith and, and also consistent with what they believed to be you know, the right things you should teach as a rabbi. And so they would frequently come to Jesus because he was kind of an up-and-coming rabbi early on in his ministry. He was very popular. He was doing things nobody else had done. He was saying things nobody else had said, and people were impressed. And so they'd come, and they'd ask him questions, and they would leave with various levels of wow or ooh or ah or whatever. And, but over time, that, that testing turned into trying to trap him. And you say, what happened? Well, fundamentally, a lot of things happened. I can't get into every detail. We'll be here all day. But one of the things that happened is the scribes and the Pharisees didn't like what Jesus' message was. And you say, well, what part? Well, there were a lot of parts, but the main part, or one of the big parts, was that Jesus kept talking about a kingdom that was not of this earth. He was talking about being, uh, ushering in a new kingdom, and that kingdom was not an earthly kingdom. And to the Jews, that was a no-no. That was a problem because the Jews loved the land. They loved Palestine where Israel is today. They want it. They still want it today. They want control of Jerusalem and the whole area. 
It's what they believe was promised to them by God. They believe it was their God-given right. It's everything they wanted, and they wanted it now, and they wanted it, they want it now, and they wanted it in Jesus' time. They desperately wanted it. And they were willing to fight for it. And matter of fact, the entire time the Romans had conquered the Jews, they were constantly uprising, trying to cause revolts and rebellions because they were trying to retake the land. They were a conquered people. They had the land at one point in their history, but they had lost it. And they were a conquered people, and they resented that. And they wanted that land. So to them, the kingdom was an earthly place. It was a physical place. So here comes Jesus talking about a kingdom, and they're like, oh, maybe he's a Messiah. Maybe he's going to help us. But then he starts saying things like it's a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this earth. It's, a different, it's an altogether different thing. And they didn't like that message, among many other things, but that was probably the big one. They didn't want that. And so they went from testing to trying to trap him. They just turned against him. The problem was is the people loved Jesus. For the most part, he was popular in the Jewish faith. And so they couldn't just outright disagree with them because they might cause an uprising against themselves. So what did they try to do? Well, they tried to trap him. And so later in his ministry, when the teachers of the law and the Pharisees showed up, they were usually trying to trick him. They were usually trying to get him caught. Now, let's talk about what it was they were trying to catch him because this is the key and this is the insight that I don't think you know that I've, I've really recently come to realize in my own study and going, wow, that makes total sense. Here it is. They wanted Jesus to issue judgment on this woman. Now, when I say judgment, I don't mean that he determined adultery is a sin. We already know that. They knew that. Adultery is a sin. But what they wanted him to do was to agree that the law of Moses said she must be punished by death and order or sentence her to that punishment. Now, why is that a trap? Why does that matter? What was so controversial about that at the time? Well, the Jews, being a conquered people, did not have the authority to execute someone. They were under Roman rule, and the Romans controlled all that power. And they issued decrees that made it very clear. In fact, when they installed a governor, they would say he was the governor, supreme ruler, with all the power over the Jews. In other words, he had to make the issue. He was the guy that sentenced somebody to live or die, not a Jew. That's why when Jesus, if you know the story, was arrested right before he was crucified, he was taken to Pilate, the Roman governor, because Pilate had to order the execution. They couldn't do it. But here, they're trying to trap Jesus into issuing a sentence. They're trying to get him to violate Roman law. And you think it's a, it's, a, it's a great plan. It's a marvelous idea because they've got him now. They've pitted him against Old Testament law. He claimed to be a prophet. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to know the Bible. He was a Jew of Jews. And, 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 and he knew the Old Testament scriptures. And so they, they, we got him. He has to say yes to this. If he says no, then he's a false prophet. If he says yes, now we can go to the Roman leaders and say, hey, this guy's uh, uh, issuing decrees about punishment and get the Romans involved to arrest Jesus and get him out of their hair. That's what was going on here. Crafty, isn't it? Yeah. Are you following me? So what does Jesus do? It's a trick. This is a trap. This is difficult. And there he is, kneels down, writes on the ground. And then he stands up and he says, you know, anyone here who's out sin, throw the first stone. And he sits back down and writes in the ground. Now, I know I'm taking all these little side roads, but you got to get the story. In our day and age, we hear that and we go, yeah, don't judge people. He, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? We're all sinners. We can't make judgments of other people. We have whole theologies based 
on that statement of Jesus Christ. Even the whole tolerance movement comes really from that statement. We can't judge other people. Hey, everybody, they got their own thing. They got their own road they got to go on. We're, not, we're no one to judge, right? That's what, that's what the world wants to say. They want to use this to justify their sin and not let anybody else condemn them for their sin. Because, hey, if I do something wrong, well, you can't tell me because you're a sinner too. That's what they've done with this statement of Jesus. But they've missed the context. Jesus didn't say, or he didn't issue a blanket statement that, hey, we shouldn't judge one another. As a matter of fact, we have to make judgments about right and wrong things. Because right and wrong do exist. There is right in this world, there is wrong in this world, and we have to make judgments on that. We have to be able to say, according to God's will, that is a wrong thing to do. According to God's will, this is the right thing to do. We don't make judgments based on our opinion. That's a mistake. But when we make judgments based on the will or word of God, we're in the right. We have to do it. We have to deem things as wrong or deem things as right. Otherwise, how would we know? We have to trust the authenticity and the validity of the scriptures. And we have to be able to stand on that. We can't be flabby. We've got to stand on that. And we got to be okay that we're standing up for what's right. Even though people may say, well, you're throwing stones. You're a sinner too. What? They're misunderstanding the passage. They're misusing it. You see, what Jesus meant, now get this, what he meant when he said, he who was without sin throw the first stone, that statement was directed at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It wasn't directed to anyone else. He was talking to them. Remember something, by their own admission, they had brought the woman who had been caught in adultery before him, and they admitted that they had caught her in the act. Now this begs the question, where was the other adulterer? So what Jesus was pointing out was that they were in violation of the law of Moses because they didn't bring both criminals. They only brought one. It was their duty to bring both to him and ask for a judgment to be passed. And then they might have actually trapped him. But because they only brought one person, they made a fatal mistake. And so Jesus said to them, well, it seems to me you guys are breaking the law too here because there's a guy roaming around somewhere that's committed adultery of this woman that you didn't bring to get charged. And that's why the older men walked away first. Because they realized their hypocrisy. They realized that they were violating the law of Moses, just as this woman had been violating the law of Moses. She violated it by committing adultery. They violated it by not bringing both offenders in to face judgment. So let's not use the phrase uh, that Jesus used here, um, anyone who is without sin throw the first stone, out of its proper context. We can't use that as a blanket statement to excuse behavior or to justify, uh, uh, you know, or, or, to, or to challenge people to tolerate our behavior or justify someone else's behavior. That's not what it's for. You're misusing it. Jesus was simply speaking to a matter of law, of, of judgment. Think of the courtroom. And he was going through legal procedure. And he was like, you guys are violating the legal procedure here. And the older ones went, oops, and started walking away. And then the younger ones figured it out because they're slower and they walked away too. The story doesn't end there. Jesus looks at the woman and he goes, is anyone here left to condemn you? Meaning, is anyone here left to pass judgment on you? Meaning legal judgment, ordering your death? She said, no. 
And he said, well, I'm not going to do that either. I'm not going to pass legal judgment. I'm not going to sit as a magistrate over you. That's actually not what Jesus came to do. Now, did he say, come here, you're a great person, and oh, you're a good gal, and I know you have it rough in life, and you know, buck up, buckaroo, and head on home. Did he say that? No, he said, woman, leave your life of sin. You see, he was just. He did call her out on her sin. Every bit as much as he called out the Pharisees and the teachers of law on their sin. What Jesus did, in, in a sense, was he, he told them the truth. He told both parties the truth. If you really want to think about it, he was fixing what was wrong. The Pharisees, the teachers of law, they were in the wrong, and Jesus was fixing what was wrong. Amen. The woman caught in adultery was in the wrong, and Jesus was fixing the wrong. Here's what I want to leave you with when we think of what does it mean to be a peacemaker. Here's the thing I want you to write down. Yes, he's not an ineffective conflict avoider. Yes, a peacemaker is a smaller version of Christ. But I'll tell you what, you know what a peacemaker is? A peacemaker is someone who writes what is wrong. Great point. Are you a peacemaker? Are you righting the wrongs that you see in the world around you? Are you willing to face those conflicts, not turn away from them, not run from them, but to step into the gap and fight and, and, and face up to them and stand up to them, not be flabby, and try to right the wrongs? Are you willing to right the wrongs in the community? There are, believe me, there are wrongs happening in Simi Valley. Are you willing to stand in the gap and help right some of the wrongs that are happening in the, in the community around you? How about in your family? Are you willing to right the wrongs with your relatives, your kids, your parents, your brothers and sisters, are you willing to be a peacemaker? You know, there is no greater wrong than not being right with God. Come on. There is no greater wrong than not being right with God. So I'm going to ask you a question. Are you right with God right now? The litmus test we've been studying for the past six, seven weeks now. The Beatitudes. Are they ever present in your life? Are you, can you be, if you were hauled into court, would you be guilty of them? Are you living like a mini version of Jesus Christ? Well, here's a good question. Maybe you don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe you know, and amen, if you do, then that tells me you know what to do to, to change. You've got to repent and start making a difference in, in, in those things. But maybe you don't know. Maybe you're not sure. So how, how, where do you go then? What do you do if you're not sure? Well, I've I got a, a quick verse, and, and we'll be done in a minute. James chapter 1. Verse 22. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now James, if you don't know, is the brother of Jesus Christ. He was the physical brother of Jesus Christ. Now the Bible tells us that Jesus was born in an immaculate 
conception. There was no dad involved in the birth of Jesus Christ other than the Heavenly Father. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and she was with child. It was a miracle. Better than the Immaculate Reception. It was a miracle. There's no Pittsburgh Steelers fans in this audience. The Immaculate Reception. Remember Franco Harris caught the ball? This was the Immaculate Conception. Way better. So Jesus was immaculately conceived, and after he was born, his parents were normal parents. They had other kids. And so he had brothers and sisters, and James was one of his brothers. And if, there, if you want a better eye view of the life of Jesus Christ and what Jesus was all about, James is a good guy to go. It's a good place to start. If you're not reading your Bible right now and you're wondering, what should I read? Read James. It's a great book. It's an insight into the life of Jesus Christ. James wasn't always on Jesus' side. He didn't like him for a little while. But he came around, and then he became a powerful leader in the, in the Christian movement, the Christ movement, after Jesus had died. And James tells us that there's a difference between listening and doing. And what he learned from Jesus Christ, his half-brother, was that you got to do both. Now, we want to try to do one or the other, don't we? I know I did. I wanted to try to do one or the other. I wanted to learn a bunch, but not necessarily apply it. Or I wanted to do things and say I'm doing all these good things, but not necessarily know whether it's good or bad. Because I'm not learning what Jesus taught. And the world is a lot like that. People are kind of like that all around us. They're on one end or the other. But James says, no, you got to actually do both. You actually got to know what Jesus said, and then you got to apply what Jesus said. You got to put it into practice. That's how you know if you are right with God. And that is the thing that Jesus wants us to rectify. That's the peace that Jesus wants his followers to bring to other people, is to help them do and listen. Or listen and do, however you like to say it. That's what he's called his followers to be. Peacemakers who right what's wrong in this world. And what's wrong in this world is that people don't listen or they don't do what Jesus Christ teaches. And that's our mission. That's what God has called, or Jesus called you and I out of the crowd to be if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. He's called us to be right with God and help other people get right with God, to make peace with God. And this is what Jesus said is a blessed, fortunate, ideal, to be congratulated way to be. So I'm going to ask you, it doesn't matter if you're a member of the church or whether you're new to the church, step out of the crowd and make a decision to listen and do. There's no better choice or decision you will make in your lifetime than the decision to listen and do. Amen. You know, the story doesn't end there, or the, the beatitude doesn't end there. It ends with a promise, like they all do. They all have a promise. And in this case, we've talked about it a little bit, but the promise is, for they will be called children of God. But I want to focus on the word called for a minute, because this is an interesting word. It actually has the idea of being an owner. It carries the concept of ownership. So maybe we could rewrite this this uh, beatitude in a way that would sort of help us understand it a little bit better in our day and age. And it would read something like this. Happy, fortunate, ideal, to be congratulated are the peacemakers, those who right what's wrong in the world around them. For they will be owned as children of God. Now, ownership has privileges. If you own anything, you know what I mean. 
there's a certain amount of security, there's a certain amount of comfortability, there's a certain amount of freedom that comes with owning something. But ownership has a downside because there's always uh, cost and liability when you own something. Now, uh, likewise, being a parent has a, a tremendous upside, right? There's privileges of being a parent. There's the satisfaction you get from seeing your kids and being around them. There's the affection you have with them. There's, there's the enjoyment of just being a parent, right? We, we all can relate to that. But there's also a disadvantage to being a parent because there's liability and there's cost. It's the same thing. We could say risk. But the one category that has no disadvantages but has all the upsides is the category of being owned as a child. Because that category comes with security, comfortability, freedom, satisfaction, affection, enjoyment, and has none of the liability. And that's what Jesus promises to those who are peacemakers. I'm going to take care of it all. I'm going to own you as my child. And that's what God wants. That's what Jesus wants for every one of us. He wants us to know that security, that comfort, that enjoyment that comes with being owned as a child. And there's no downside. There's no cost. There's no liability. You're the child. God takes it all. He owns it all. The weight, the burden, the cost, it's all on Him. Now that really is a blessed way to be. I don't know about you, but that's what I need in my life. Because I can tell you life, as you know, with kids, is up and down. And there's a time where you have got to be able to give it to someone because you can't carry it. And I can give it to my friends, and I love my friends, and they help, but they can't carry it either. But God can. And that's true with any area of our lives. Whatever the difficulty is, whatever the cost, whatever the liability is, God can carry it. He can back it. He can insure it. You can't. And neither can I. And no insurance policy in the world can. But that's the promise. You know, I started off and I was sharing about my family and my brother and two older sisters and how all of us have some connection to our dad, you know. And I, and I was thinking about Father's Day and I thought, you know what would be a great gift to give God on Father's Day? It would be to, to show Him the part of us that's like Him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll close with a prayer and we'll have a final song and we'll be dismissed.